Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. More from the CBA Unite event leading us off on this edition. Christian music legend Sandy Patty visited with me recently at the event to discuss her new book, Elements of Her Story, and how she desires for people to use their voices to speak in accordance with God's work in their lives. Then some encouragement and instruction on a concept called verse mapping. You'll be hearing from author Christy Cameron with direction on digging deep into God's word. Also at CBA Unite 2018, presented by CBA, the Association for Christian Retail, I sat down with Craig Von Buzek of Inspiration Ministries, who was there recording interviews, but who came to the other side of the mic to share with me about an updated version of one of his books dealing with knowing God's direction. Also from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at Unite 2018, you'll be hearing from Dawn Owens, who leads a ministry, The Link of Coleman County, Alabama, which does educational training. She's written a book about identifying and dealing with being addicted to the approval of other people. And coming up on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, there is a different sort of conference that occurred recently in St. Louis called Revoice, which has created concern because of its mixing of the affirmation of LGBT identity with biblical teaching. Robert Oscar Lopez from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary offered some insight about the content and premise of the conference. Then it's back to CBA Unite with Kansas pastor Kevin Cloud, who has identified spiritual themes present within the life of one of our nation's founders, Alexander Hamilton, and in the Broadway musical based on his life. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, from the stream, it's Liberty McCarter reporting on two instances of violations of religious freedom, one involving a teenager kidnapped in Nigeria and held because she would not renounce Christianity, another involving a pastor in Turkey, an American, unjustly held in prison for charges related to terrorism. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. CBA, the Association for Christian Retail, presented the Unite 2018 event recently at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center in Nashville. I had a chance to chat with one of Christian music's most familiar and enduring voices, Sandy Patty, who relates some elements of her own life story in a new memoir called The Voice, Listening for God's Voice and Finding Your Own. She shared with me about the concept of the book and related how God has worked in her life. Here now is Sandy Patty. I've learned to be more comfortable with my speaking voice and my voice in words that I just felt like, you know what, I want to share just in ways how God has been very faithful and stories that I've not shared in any other book. So is in this kind of crazy little book called The Voice and I'm able to unpack just how I've found my voice that God has given me far different than a singing voice. Well, let's talk just a bit about that. And I know there's also an aspect as the subtitle implies that you help people to find their voice. So not only do you share stories of your own, but you could also help people with respect to their own speaking out. So, so talk about that concept, if you would, of how God really enabled you to find your voice, not and not pertaining to the singing voice, although that's obviously an important component of your life. Yeah. You know, I have been so encouraged over the years when other people have been willing to be real 
and share some parts of their journey that haven't been all that pretty. And so one of the reasons that doing a book like this has been important for me is that hopefully it can encourage those coming behind who haven't maybe learned how to speak up and speak out yet. That maybe if it can encourage, it can, can encourage someone who, you know, was younger than I was when I began this journey and they can have a richer, fuller life knowing that their voice matters, knowing that God has given them that voice to share and uplift and encourage one another, um, then, it's, then that is worth it to me very much. What are some of the, the highlights? And I'm, I know there are many, but if you had to boil it down, what were you looking for to really include in this book, the types of, of stories or moments, if you would? You know, I think being a young mom and traveling um, and employing, you know, childcare people on the road, um, I didn't understand really sort of how to be really clear about my expectations for the childcare people and what my expectations were for them being on the road. And I think sometimes young moms, no matter where you're at, we have a hard time sort of saying, this is what I'd like for my kid. This is what I you know, kind of expect. Is this a service you offer or whatever? That's, that's one example of that. I think another example for me personally was um, my son, Jonathan, who's now 30. Um, when he was two, had a pretty major head injury and um, had to have immediate brain surgery. And we just had no idea kind of what his journey would look like from there on. And to watch him sort of have to discover his voice in a sense, retrain parts of you know his brain and reconnect the wiring. It was an example for me as I was reflecting on that story that sometimes when we don't know how to do something that we have to genuinely learn it and practice it. I tell a lot of uh, young women that I have the opportunity to mentor, um, they say, oh, I just don't know how to say something. And I'll say, well, if you could say anything you wanted to say without any repercussions, what would you want to say? Write that down. So I'll have them write that down. Then I'll say, and take that, and when you're in your car by yourself, practice, practice that. Um, because some things don't come naturally to people and we have to practice it. And um, that's, that was a, a thing for me that became real important is I had a group of friends around me who would say, then you need to practice the word saying to your child caregiver, I don't appreciate that you whatever. And I learned, I would literally practice that. Um, so we, there's ways we can help one another uncover our voice and find our voice. Um, and it's okay to learn a new skill. If it doesn't come naturally, it's a way that we can learn it. Sandy Patty from CBA Unite 2018 here on The Intersection. Her website is Sandy with an I, Patty with a Y, dot com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's author Christy Cameron. She discussed the concept of verse mapping as expressed in the Bible study books, Luke, Gathering the Goodness of God's Word, and Acts, 
feasting on the abundance of God's Word. From that recent conversation, this is Christy Cambron. In 2014, I transitioned away from my corporate career, which was a 15-year career working for a Fortune 100 company, doing a lot of curriculum design, research writing, maybe some technical writing thrown in, but education and training and all of those things. And when I transitioned away from that career into ministry full-time, it started as a historical fiction author, which I still am. However, in the years after that and just falling in love with Scripture and really just spending time with the Lord in verse mapping, all of that came back. All of that love for writing and curriculum design and teaching, it came back, and we now have the verse mapping series, which really lends itself to what I did all those years ago. So God was training you for this new chapter and this verse mapping the uh, the two books, as I mentioned, that have already been released. So if you had to describe what verse mapping actually is, how would you describe it? I would drill this down for your listeners into its serious study, but study that moves with you. And so in my place in life, I don't know if your listeners have this situation going on, but we have three little kids in the house. I have a couple of jobs writing fiction and nonfiction, some speaking thrown in. It seems like we're always on the move. And I wanted to love the Word of God. I wanted to fit, not just fit the Word of God into my daily schedule, but make it a mark on my heart. And I've never really done that before. And I wanted a study method that was super simple, but really intense. And that's what verse mapping is. You basically take a verse in the Bible, you write it in multiple translations. That's the second step. The, the third step is just looking into the keywords and phrases that you find that really kind of prick your heart, or you have a question, or you're curious. You dig into the Hebrew and the Greek. Then you go to the actions, which is really kind of my storyteller's heart here. This is where everyone gets an opportunity to find out what's happening in this verse, you know, to look up the context, to research the history. And then the last step is really where we get the transition from the Bible in the book to how it fits into my life today. Really, you should be able to have your outcome in on a post-it note. You should be able to take two sentences of what hmm. I've done with the Holy Spirit in this map and apply it to your life today. And I just took your, your listeners through the five steps. Well, that is awesome. And essentially what you're talking about here is in-depth journaling. Essentially, you're, you're looking into this verse and you're, you're learning and then writing down what you learned. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really funny, Bob, that I have these old verse mapping journals from 2014, 2015, that was really only ever supposed to be between me and the Holy Spirit. You know, it's almost like a diary sure. for a middle school girl, you know, <laughs> so it was supposed to be between us. And, and then all these years later, it's just incredible how all of the learning that I was doing for the first time has now transitioned into these first two Bible studies, because I started in the book of Acts and then transitioned over to Luke, and I'm now moving on to other things. But absolutely, it's taking scripture, mapping it out visually so you can see it, and you have a record of your time with God, which is amazing because you can go back and look at it later. So what do you anticipate that people either will or potentially can experience as a result of discovering and applying verse mapping in their lives? Oh, I can tell you right off that this method is going to retrain their mind to think 
like a researcher. I was in an airport after my husband and sons and I went on a research trip in Ireland and I was sitting there, they were watching football or something. And I was sitting there and I was reading scripture. And I remember distinctly that there was something I didn't understand. And I stopped what I was reading. I went to Google. I looked it up on a map and thought, okay, I got it. And then I went back and I thought, wow, I'm sitting in a busy airport on my phone. That's the only tool I had. And I'm verse mapping in my head. And so that is something that your your listeners are going to find as they begin to study more and more time with the Holy Spirit that this is literally going to retrain their mind to think like a storyteller, to think like a researcher. And that's probably the most exciting thing because Jesus told stories. God is a storyteller. We have the greatest story in the Bible, and they are going to open it and understand it maybe for the first time. Christy Cambron here on The Intersection. Learn more at Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y, Cambron.com. This is The Intersection podcast from Unite 2018. Craig Bonbusek digital content editor for Inspiration Ministries and author of the updated edition of the book, Seven Keys to Hearing God's Voice, discussed content relative to that book, including principles of knowing God's direction. Here now is Craig Von Buzek. The original was a Bible study because that's what the original publisher had done, and that publisher is no longer in business, and so I've created my own uh, little publishing house called Ramcastle Press to put it out. And so this is no longer in a Bible study format. It's in more of a trade book format. So I cut the the word count down a little bit. And uh, there are questions now at the end of each chapter rather than being, you know, like a Beth Moore study where you write in the answers. But what I'm going to do is uh, along with the book, I'm also uh, developing an online course, which is actually going to have all the questions from the old book. Plus, it's going to have my video teaching for each chapter Mm. along with the text of the book. Uh, But if you buy the book itself, it's a little shorter. Uh, Some of the stories have been updated uh, because that that original book was written in 2003. So some of the things that were happening then are not really, you know, as relevant today. And so we updated the stories. But most of the teaching is evergreen teaching. You know, it'll be just as true in 100 years as it is today because it's God's truth. Well, something, and I want to kind of dust this away here at the the beginning of our conversation. We talk about more of this this content in the book, but when you say hear people that are talking about, well, God said to me, and they give a quote, or they say God told me to do this, or something of that sort. When we're talking about hearing God's voice, I think that there might be a, there could be a tendency to associate with God leading us by his Holy Spirit and speaking to us in accordance with his word, confusing that or, you know, having that perception that when we talk about hearing God's voice and we're talking about some of this stuff where, you know, someone just out of blue will say, well, you know, God said this, to, God told me to do this or something like that. Does, mm-hmm. that make, does that make sense? Well, that's the reason that there are seven keys to hearing God's voice. So there is, Great answer. Yeah. That was a great answer. There is no one particular way that God typically will speak to us. Now, God is God, and he can do whatever yeah, sure, he wants. Sure. Yeah. However, because God is love and God is also a God of order, he has revealed in his word these seven different uh, ways that he will guide through Uh, through our lives so that we can confirm, which is one of the keys, we can confirm that sense in our heart of what God may be speaking to us. So, for example, the very first key is the scripture. And so if we may 
sense that God is saying something to our heart. And people say, well, how does that happen? Well, I call it our sanctified mm. imagination. So I hold up this blue crayon and I write my name on the wall. I shouldn't do that, but I'm writing on the wall with Call the blue Opryland crayon. Call Opryland Security immediately. Yeah, exactly. People can see <laughs> that blue crayon, right? Well, in their mind's eye they can, but I didn't actually do it. That's the way that God will speak to us. He will use our own imagination to where at first we think it's our own thought. And quite often, I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to see that we thought we were thinking these thoughts when really God was God doing was a download. Yes, yes, exactly. And so we learn to discern those two things by saying, okay, does this thing that is an impression in my mind, does it line up with the principles of scripture? If it doesn't, then we reject it outright. If it does, then we move on to the other keys. So the other keys include godly counsel. So I've received this impression, or maybe I was reading the Word of God and something jumped out at me. Because the Word of God can give us general principles, but it doesn't tell us, should I take that job? Should I marry this person? Should I move across the country? Should I da-da-da-da? Those are specific things that we have to kind of find our way to the answers, especially on the big decisions. So godly counsel. I talk to a mature believer, pastor, a Christian counselor, my parents who are mature in the faith, and I get their input, and then I mix that in. The next thing is the peace of God. Hmm. And the Bible says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. The Greek for the word rule in the original language was the word that we use for umpire. And so oh. what it's saying is, are we safe in God's wor- in will? Or are we out of God's will? Yeah. And so then the, the next thing is confirmation. And throughout the scripture, both Old and New Testament, and Jesus himself said this, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let all things be established. That's why we don't just go on an impression. That's only one key. We have to have two or three confirmations to help us realize and you know god is not upset about that he says it in his word so he's yeah. more than happy we can pray and say lord please confirm this and he does craig von buzek here on the intersection you can find out more by going to the website von buzek that's b-u-s-e-c-k dot com the inspiration ministries website can be accessed through inspiration.net more now from CBA Unite. It's Don Owens, founder and executive director of The Link of Coleman County, Alabama, and the author of the book, Like Me or Not, Overcoming Approval Addiction. She discussed how the need for approval operates and how it can be dealt with through the Lord. Here now from that conversation is Don Owens. I want to make it clear that we're only talking about when you have these differences of opinions, because there are times that you have to break off relationships that they're yes, not yes. safe. Yes, yes. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. yeah. But um, but when it's just a difference of view, I think the problem that comes between them um, is that we get offended, right? And in our offense, it's more about me and what I think and feel about what you just said than it is about you trying to communicate how you're feeling. And oftentimes when we're doing that, our, our voices will raise, we're getting passionate about what we feel, um, and in doing so, again, I'm thinking that every uh, which way that you're getting passionate about it is all about, it's hurting me, mm-hmm. it's, it's affecting mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Yep. Right. But deep down inside, you may have some stuff that you're trying to overcome that you've got. You've been wounded by people before or there's been ways that people have said things to you that have hurt in the past. And so you end up communicating in a way that that really kind of brings some of that baggage in the conversation. Right. That has absolutely nothing to do with me at all. But what ends up happening online is we don't even know each other. Right. 
a lot of times you're communicating with somebody and it's almost easier to be mean because, well, I don't even know who they are in the first place. There you go. Right? Yep. And, Type and it in, press in. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and you could shut it down if you want to. Um, but again, that's not the, the Christ-like thing to do in any way, shape, or form. Um, but we have to realize that most of the time we are self-centered, selfish, stiff-necked people just like the Israelites. <laughs> and so yeah, our true. focus is on us. It's not always about serving someone else and their needs needs. It's very interesting you said. I wanted to return to that because you made a very good point with respect to relationships. There are going to be instances where relationships will will either go through different seasons or there may be a situation. There may be a either a conflict between the two parties in the relationship or it may be where you have one person that has noticed something that is going on and they want to biblically confront that. Right. Knowing full well, if you are the confront, the confronter, mm-hmm. you are running the risk of ending the relationship if the if whatever you're sharing is not received well. Right. Now you you obviously you pray that it will be received, and it may be a delayed reaction or whatever. But do you find that? And I don't know to what degree you deal with this in the book. Do you find that to to some degree people don't exercise? true biblical compassion because they're afraid that they are going to end a relationship? Yeah, um, I touch on it a couple of different ways. Fear of rejections in there, um, taking up offenses and anger <laughs> is another one. So it's it's hit on a couple of different avenues. But uh, but for sure, I think that that is a, um, a, a big issue. And I think especially here in the South, people don't like to confront each other on a lot of things. Where I come from up north, you get it on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the cabbies, you know, get out of my way, hog. You know, uh, it's it's just different living in the South. But um, but I really think we're doing ourselves and the relationship more damage than good when we don't address the issues that are hurting us and festering underneath uh, because we're not giving birth to uh, the feelings that we have and the emotions that we have that are often um, sometimes even ill-founded. We could be assuming uh, that somebody meant something when they didn't. And so if we never actually go to the person and say, is this what you meant? Because if you did, this is how I felt. Is that okay? <laughs> um, you, you'll never have any resolution over that. And you will have a lot of broken relationships uh, around you. All right. Final question here relative to the book, Like Me or Not. You tell readers, don't choose to be offended. And and this, of course, entails choosing forgiveness. So f- what what instruction or direction would you give readers to do that it's it's not an easy one um but it was life-giving to me when somebody said to me you know don you can choose not to be offended you can decide that you don't want to take offense off of what somebody else said to you and i went what do you mean i could do that i never even that thought never even crossed my mind Uh, i think for a lot of us we actually enjoy being offended we like to flip that scenario around in our head a couple times and tell the person what we really think about them (laughs) in our thoughts, um, which only makes us more offended. But if we can choose a different way, if we can choose forgiveness instead of being offended, again, I think we would see healthier relationships in the long run um, so that we can flourish and do the things that God has called us to do. Dawn Owens here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website dawnmowens.com. 
This is the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or reach the homepage through the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. You can also access the podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you visit faithradio.org. And through the Meeting House homepage, there are links to two blogs. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. And you can get connected to video content, including recently added content from CBA Unite 2018. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Robert Oscar Lopez is a professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and contributor to the book, The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. In our conversation, he shared about his own personal story as a formerly gay man who follows Christ. He also issued warnings regarding the Revoice Conference, which was scheduled for July 26th through 28th in St. Louis. From that conversation, here's some material now from Robert Oscar Lopez. Well, the conference is bad news. There's no other way to put it. I, I, I want to just be very direct and say this is not a good development. It's terrible because uh, one of the threats that we face after the Obergefell versus Hodges decision, which that was a Supreme Court decision that made recognition of gay marriage compulsory in the whole United States, uh, the churches cannot rely upon repeating their old mantra that they believe marriage is between one man and one woman. It's great that you believe that, I believe that, but that's not the battle we're fighting right now. The the, the fight has left the civil law arena, it's left the, the courts, and it's in our churches. The LGBT movement wants to get into our churches and remove homosexuality from the sin list. They want to rewrite Genesis. They want to say that homosexuality is something that God created and that people are born gay because God made them gay and they can't change. This conference, even though on the surface they're saying that they're not going to encourage the participants to engage in homosexual sex acts, and even though they say that they will support the biblical definition of marriage, they are promoting that dangerous philosophy, which is that somehow the identity came from God, and this is a God-given sexual orientation. And so the more that people reinforce that that idea that somehow God makes people gay, the the less possible it will be even to hold on to the slim position that we're staking out right now, because eventually you're not going to be able to define marriage as only between one man and one woman, because if you concede that God makes people gay, then you're basically conceding that the, the biblical passages we use to define marriage are not correct or they're not authentic or we've gotten it wrong and so how can you base marriage on that so we have to defend the idea that god made us to be heterosexual that that god never made anybody gay that is not something that comes from god but revoice i think uh is clearly trying to advance the idea that these people are going to remain in their identity because that is a godly thing to do because god created their homosexual urges in order for some plan that God had for them, which I think is a total violation of what we know from the epistle from James when he says God does not tempt anyone to evil. 
You know, that is from your own depraved thoughts. You're going astray. Uh, we know from Romans 1, when Paul says how God delivers us over to our darkened thoughts when we become confused and when we start to worship other things, not knowing what is God and what is not God. So it's important for us to stake this out now, and we have to stand up to this conference. We have to make it clear that this is uh, a false teaching. This is basically heresy, and we've got to act like it's heresy. We can't sort of sit around and be nice about it. And and you asked about who is supporting it. I guess that that worries me as well because I see that they a lot of the speakers have these connections to people in the human rights campaign and other similar gay rights organizations that I know from my past work they they're not in a, the business of trying to defend biblical teaching they have one single-minded goal that they have, which is they want to get into the churches and change everybody's mm. thoughts about homosexuality so that they can get their gay activists uh, access to the funding and the power and the social support that comes with churches. So this is a very disturbing uh, event. I think a lot of the speakers are going to try very hard to make their heresy look good. You know, they're going to say, well, you know, I'm doing this because I want to live a, a biblical life and I'm not going to act on it. I'm going to remain celibate. But then if you look closely at what they're saying, many of them are talking about getting involved in these spiritual friendships where they have very close non-physical relationships with uh, other people of the same sex. And it's almost like a romantic relationship without sex. This is all bad because it won't even hold up. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> I mean, eventually, if you're roommates with someone and you're both same-sex attracted and you're saying that you're just going to be really close friends and you're going to adopt children together but you're not going to have sex, I don't really see how that's biblical because to me it sounds like you know, you're, you've created some little distinction in your mind that because you're not doing things with your body that all the other things that you're doing which are against God's design are somehow going to keep you in good stead. And, and to me that just seems purposefully deceitful, and we know that God cannot be mocked. Robert Oscar Lopez here on The Intersection. His website is EnglishManif, that's M-A-N-I-F dot blogspot dot com. Back to CBA Unite 2018 now with Kevin Cloud, lead pastor of Midwest Fellowship in Overland Park, Kansas, and author of the book, God and Hamilton, Spiritual Themes from the Life of Alexander Hamilton and the Broadway musical he inspired. He highlighted some of the spiritual content that he had observed from the life of Hamilton, as well as what was portrayed in that musical. Here now is Kevin Cloud. The very first one is, is, the, is the idea of grace, where he grows up in the Caribbean. His father leaves their family when Alexander's five. His mother dies at age 10. And so at a very young age, Alexander is, is a poor orphan kid in the Caribbean, has no future, no possibility ahead of him. And then a hurricane comes and devastates the island. And Hamilton actually wrote a letter in response to this hurricane. And the local newspaper picks it up and publishes it because it's so beautifully written. And some businessmen read it and see this enormous intellectual potential in Hamilton. And they raise money to send him to America. And I love imagining that conversation of these businessmen sitting down with him and saying to him, Alexander, we see enormous potential in you. We think you can make a mark on this world, and we're going to raise money to send you to America. And so everything that Hamilton becomes in America, as we talked earlier, he, he becomes the second most influential founding father, most people would say, 
it's all built on this foundation of grace, right? It's this gift he never could have deserved, a gift he didn't earn, and yet that is what the foundation is of what he becomes. And so in the book, what I try to do then is then turn that back on our lives and remind all of us, isn't that true of our lives? Our, the foundation of our life is built on grace, mm. on a gift we don't deserve, on a gift we will never earn, and that is what everything that we become is built on as well. And so the challenge is to accept that, and we struggle so mightily with believing that to be true and believing that God's grace is greater than our brokenness. But that's what I love about these stories is it, it confronts our lives and it helps us apply these truths to our lives today. Well, something that strikes me about the Alexander Hamilton timeline is that, you know, you have someone who is a great builder and he and James Madison, of course, crafting the Federalist Papers yeah. and really providing some of the, the foundation for our system of government. He serves as an advisor to George Washington. The, you know, you've got the, well, the semi-disastrous time period with the Articles of Confederation. Right. And boom, you've got the Constitution right. and you've got the the presidency, George Washington, is in that place. Hamilton continues to work, his economic system and such. And then it seems like, you know, and I'm going from memory here, but probably toward the end of maybe Washington's first term or his second term, through the John Adams presidency, even yeah. through the, you know, with Jefferson, which Hamilton and Jefferson were not, no, you know, they were, were not, not friends. friends. <laughs> Neither really, yeah, Hamilton really wasn't fond of, of Adams. In fact, there were a lot of people that weren't really fond of uh, Alexander yeah. Yeah. Hamilton. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Washington was his greatest friend and advocate. Yeah. And then once Washington steps aside and decides not to run for that third term, uh, Hamilton goes very quickly from the second most powerful man in the government to a complete political exile because he just couldn't get along with the other founding fathers. Yeah. And, and you know, we talked earlier about the despair that Hamilton experienced. He goes into the season of deep depression uh, because he has this affair that goes public with Mariah Reynolds, becomes the first government sex scandal. Uh, his son is shot and killed in a duel where the son goes to the dueling grounds to try to protect his father's honor. And then thirdly, uh, Adams and then Jefferson really kind of exile Hamilton. And all of a sudden he, he's lost all his influence and his position. And he really tumbles into this season of deep despair and depression because he has gone from this very influential man in U.S. politics to now trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life and not having that influence anymore. So he was a brash personality. A lot of the founding fathers didn't like him, couldn't get along with him. And again, when Washington stepped aside, that was a big problem for Hamilton. Very interesting. You stop and think about this because, yes, the, the group of people that we know as our founding fathers, they were not by any means a monolithic group. That's exactly you, right. You, That's exactly right. You really get a sense of that. But late in life, there is a redemption element that yeah. you pick up on and bring out in the book. Yeah, this is one of my favorite themes in the musical, and I talk about it in the book. So Hamilton, he's an orphan, right? And he really is ashamed of that reality. I mean, again, he's working with all these men of wealth, men of great heritage, and he's kind of the odd man out in a lot of ways with the founding fathers. And so he has a lot of shame that he carries around from his orphan upbringing, his orphan status. And after he dies, about two years after that, his wife, Eliza, feels this really clear call from God to go build an orphanage. And what I love about this story is she takes this really broken part of her husband's life and makes it beautiful, right? You can imagine her kind of carrying and shouldering that burden with her husband and having late night conversations about the hurt and pain he experiences uh, being an orphan. And then she takes all of that and goes and makes it beautiful. And she serves and loves and blesses these kids who are orphans in, in New York City. Kevin Cloud here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website godandandhamilton.com. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Liberty McCarter, staff writer for the website The Stream. 
In our conversation, she reported on two instances of violations of religious freedom, one involving a teenager, Leah Sherabu, kidnapped in Nigeria and held because she would not renounce Christianity, another involving a pastor, Andrew Brunson, in Turkey, an American being unjustly held in prison for charges related to terrorism. Here now from that conversation is Liberty McCarter. Leah, who is 15 years old, was captured along with her schoolmates from uh, the village of Dopshi. It's in northeast Nigeria. Um, and, and when Boko Haram captured the schoolgirls, it was reminiscent of um, things they've done in the past. Listeners may remember when they captured over 200 schoolgirls in 2014 from Chibok, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, with the Dopshi girls, they did release the majority of them the very next month. But they held Leah back because Leah was the only Christian in the group. The other girls were Muslim girls. And when they returned to their families, they said that uh, Boko Haram had tried to uh, force Leah to convert to Islam, and she wouldn't do it. She would not renounce her faith. And that's why they have kept her captive. And on July 18th, um, which is when there was a prayer campaign for her that actually marked 150 days that she has been in captivity. International Christian Concern is a organization that works with persecuted Christians around the globe. And so I've been speaking uh, with their Africa manager, Nathan Johnson. And so he's been in contact, you know, with uh, Leah's family, actually, and, and getting updates on her situation. Um, and he says one of the most important things we can do is to raise awareness about her condition in addition to praying and to put pressure on the Nigerian government because, unfortunately, for them, Leah's case has fallen to the back burner. Um, Leah's father said no government official has contacted their family, and their family is in increased danger now because they live in a state that's run by Sharia law, and with Leah's case, now know that they are a Christian family, and so they're in a lot of danger as well. And so, um, but the Nigerian government, according to the people I've spoken with, they're unlikely to prioritize Leah or try to get her rescued unless there is international pressure. It's just not a high priority for them. So having a prayer campaign with people around the world participating, having people um, contact the Nigerian embassy in their countries or, you know, use social media to contact Nigerian government officials, and even in the U.S. contacting your own representatives and saying, hey, are you aware of Leah's case? That's all going to be really important if we want to see the Nigerian government do anything. Liberty, as we shift from the situation in Nigeria to the situation in Turkey, we find another example of religious persecution. Bring us up to date for people that may not be familiar with some of the intricacies of this case involving Pastor Andrew Brunson. What has he experienced and where are we now? Well, um, just a brief overview. He has been in Turkey for over 20 years pastoring a church there um, with his wife, and he was taken into custody in 2016, actually, so in, uh, in October of 2016, so almost two years ago. Um, and it was after they had the big coup attempt in Turkey, and he was charged uh, with being a part of a terrorist group, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, um, accused of, you know, trying to uh, instigate uh, unrest and violence against President Erdogan over there. Um, and, and some of the charges in the indictment that the government later released are just, you know, according to experts, far smarter than I am, who are actually involved over there with the case, 
are absolutely crazy. For instance, is you know, text from his church members saying that they can't be at worship service, or the fact that he was translating Bibles, um, and or the fact that he posed for a, a, a picture with a certain individual. You know, and um, in the Constitution in Turkey, they're supposed to have religious freedom, but a lot of experts are saying, especially since the latest coup attempt, they're really clamping down on a lot of those rights. Um, that individuals should have. And the Turkish government says it's not about um, Pastor Brunson's faith. But then in the indictment, it says that he was dividing and separating Turkey by means of Christianization. And so it seems, and he denies, of course, all of these charges that he's been involved in terrorist activities against Turkey. But according to reporters who are there in Turkey, the hearings have been very one-sided with um, only witnesses from the prosecution being allowed. Uh, And so a lot of people had hoped that since, you know, the president and some senators and other government officials in the U.S. have been aware of Pastor Brunson's case, maybe they were working out a deal, and this last hearing that happened last Wednesday, maybe he would be released, but that didn't happen. Um, He, the, the, the judge, did not release that Pastor Brunson, and he will have another hearing on um, October 12th. Liberty McCarter from The Stream here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to thestream.org. Shortly following this conversation, it was announced that Pastor Brunson had been moved from prison to house arrest. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through meetinghouseonline.info or through the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me through Twitter or Facebook. And you can get connected to video content, including recently added content from Unite 2018 presented by CBA, the Association for Christian Retail. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection. I'm Bob Crittenden.